without further ado, Matt Bell. Thank you. Vernon's a lot taller than I am. Um, uh, thank you so much for being here. I feel really close to that. Um, we're really glad to be here at Skylight, which is a bookstore I've never visited before and uh, have always heard such good things about. It's really nice to see it. Um, Thank you, Vernon. Thank you, Amelia, for being here. Uh, I'm going to read for maybe like 15, 20 minutes, and then Amelia and I will, will chat for a bit. Uh, usually I talk a little more before I launch into the book, but I'm going to go faster today since you're going to listen to us talk afterward as well. Um, Scrapper is set in contemporary Detroit in what I think of as a mythic version of Detroit. You'll sort of, I think you'll sort of hear the language is sort of heightened. Um, it's sort of a, a turned a little bit. Um, it follows a character named uh, Kelly, who's a illegal metal scavenger in sort of the uh, 100,000 abandoned buildings that are in the center of Detroit. Um, so it starts off there. Kelly's uh, from Michigan, grew up in a small town like two hours north of Detroit, kind of like the small town that I grew up in. Um, he's lived in the south for the last 10 years, comes back to Detroit, is unable to find work, starts doing this illegal metal scavenging. Um, He's a, an ex-boxer. He was a high school wrestling champion. Um, he's sort of fleeing uh, the breakup of a relationship um, in the South. And I think that's most of it. Um, so as he's scrapping, he's scrapping for metal. Eventually, what really sets off the story of the book is that he discovers in one of the houses that he's taking metal out of a young boy who's been kidnapped and held in the basement of this house. And he rescues him and becomes a sort of local celebrity for a while. Um, he becomes friends with the boy, his name is Daniel, and becomes obsessed with solving the kidnapping um, and uh, and looking for the kidnapper, which is, uh, the book becomes sort of a detective novel in that way afterwards. I'm going to read uh, a couple minutes from the beginning uh, so you can sort of hear the, the setting and sort of Kelly moving through Detroit, and then I'm going to read the chapter where he rescues Daniel. So thank you very much. Um, I think the only thing that you may have to know at all for this is you'll hear Kelly call this part of Detroit the zone, which is sort of what he calls that abandoned part of the city. And in the second chapter, there's a reference to a character called the girl with the limp, which is a woman named Jackie um, that Kelly becomes romantically involved with. Um, he often doesn't think of people by their names. He thinks of them by some notable trait instead, which is his thing that you won't need to know about for this. Thank you so much. There had once been a magnificence to these streets, and the evidence of those times was still there, in the zone, in edifices to ideas that had not lasted. On many days, Kelly saw the endurance of the beautiful, the way the slow degradation of acid rain in other weather could make the zone more lovely, not less. He entered churches where painted crosses faded from the walls, where wind howled some days through stolen stained glass, when other days birds flitted between the iron braces left behind, the braces waiting for the theft, the pews remaining but the organ pipes long gone, dust and smatter everywhere, a city silt fallen, unswept, a manifestation, the refuse of long-go prayers, the birds nesting in the rafters. He walked shredded schools lacking students, but not piles of serviceable desks, ran his hands along the spines of books left behind, the previous fictions of history, stories no one wanted to steal. Bottles of printer's ink lined glassless windowsills, glowed in shafts of sunlight, colored vacant offices, blue and red and black 
and super blue. Locker rooms lay unlocked. The locker doors removed. The open walls spilling onto gym floors made of century-dead trees. The wax scuffed with shoes and time, tagged with layers of spray paint. He wandered the rows of emptied houses and overgrown yards, roamed grassy blocks beneath bare-socketed streetlights. In every structure he entered, he found some objects trashed and some he could sell, and now some rare and better and less valuable objects, objects abandoned by accident, chances, castaways. Soon he lifted some new bauble from nearly every site, folded a broken spine paperback into his pocket, ripped a single pencil-marred Ave Maria from a hymnal, pocketed a child's toy, heavy as lead, a bent-tined fork kicked behind a counter. He brought home some objects he planned to use and some he wanted to look at. In his apartment, he chose a cupboard meant for dishes to store these more useless thefts, an exhibit of his travels in the zone, of what relics had called out in the places he'd been, the bleak houses of the blackout city. Kelly thought the world wasn't full of special objects, only plain ones. Nothing was assembled special, nothing and no one, but the plainest objects could be supercharged by attention, made nuclear by suggestion. He could pick up the same object in two different houses and in one sense a completely different thrumming. What he wanted was anything loved. When he couldn't remember anymore where he had taken something from, then he threw it out. Making emotion last wasn't the object's first power, but it was the power he wanted most. Anything he took from someone else's life wouldn't work forever, but if he kept acquiring more, maybe the feelings might remain transferred across the overlap. The fall sun shining on the waving grass, the hardy scrub of trees spreading across vacancies. Everywhere he took something, he tried to leave something else behind. The unexpected juxtaposition of nature and ruin, metal for memories, memories for metal. There was so much he wanted gone. There was such a sprawling, untenanted city in which to dump it. And in the falling streets, he discovered the great perseverance of the people who remained. Their faces shined in the light wherever he saw them, on porches or in driveways, outside liquor stores and bars. He wasn't their neighbor, but he saw their beauty. He needed to eat, and there wasn't any work. But what was he taking from these people? Nothing, he tried to tell himself, they had not already lost. To leave the edge of the zone for its center was to abandon the present for the future, and wherever Kelly went, he thought he might be the last person to see these sites. Others would come with bulldozers and excavators, or else with arson and theft, but they wouldn't see how he saw, moving carefully through these rooms and hallways, staring out these windows, marveling at the way you could see the lit skyline of the inhabited city from the endless dusk of its unlit neighborhoods. There were still some progressions in play, but he saw how the zone had moved beyond time, or at least outside of the time marked by digital clocks, smartphone calendars. Inside the zone, events moved along past solar, lunar, seasonal, new geological epochs marked by strata of waste, eras identifiable by the brand names left inside cupboards, by the industrial design of unpowered appliances, a preview of what the world might look like during its coming decline. 
Kelly pretended he carried the last human gaze door to door, window to window, exploring the first outpost of a culture pushed past repair. He thought it could be destroyed, but could it be fixed? All the better futures might not arrive. He didn't think his was the final generation, but perhaps the last might already be born. And what did this mean for him, for the good man he had tried and failed to be? In some houses, he found handwritten notes. He found one taped to the cracked plaster across from a house's front door. We're leaving in the morning. And then the date the last inhabitants left not so long ago. In the back of a child's closet, he found a scrawl of crayon reading, I'll be back for you, written to the house, to whatever the child thought a house was. Sometimes there was an animal living there still. The animal was always a cat. What did these cats eat? Where did they sleep and piss and shit? Sometimes it wasn't so hard to see. The skeletons of mice shit in one corner of a room. The smell of piss everywhere. The cat following Kelly from room to room, rubbing its body against his boots. Names everywhere, on the houses, in the asphalt, carved into trees, fences, doors. I love you, house, one note read. I built this house with my hands, said another. Goodbye, I'm sorry, we had to leave, but this was home. Uh, and I'm going to skip forward to the chapter where Kelly rescues Daniel. Um, thank you. The morning of the first snow, Kelly drove an unexplored length of the zone, coasting the truck slowly from driveway to driveway, assessing doors left open, windows missing, porches collapsed by the removal of their metal supports. Some of the houses had been scrapped already, but he knew he would find one more recently closed, with boards in the windows and an intact door. A space empty, but not yet shredded. The zone sprawled beneath the falling snow, cast its imperfection wider than he could accept. But eventually, he chose a house, two floors, blue paint on the siding, gray boards over the windows, a yellow door surrounded on both sides by vacant lots with only a burnt shell standing watch across the streets. Then he went to the door and knocked, yelled greetings loaded with question marks. He waited, yelled again. He raised his hood, returned to the truck for a pry bar. He moved out of the front yard and along the side of the house, the brown grass crunching beneath the snow. Beside the blue house was a metal gate and a chain-link fence, but the gate wasn't latched. At the first window, he pulled back the covering board, found the glass gone. He peeked in, searched for furniture, a television, or a radio. Instead, stained carpet, signs of water damage, a kitchen with no dirty dishes but an intact gas range, a sink and faucet he could wrench from the countertops. He lifted himself through the window. Leading away from the kitchen was a staircase to the second floor and also a basement door closed and latched with a padlock. He'd cut the lock later, after the other work was done. Upstairs, the bedrooms were small, sloped to fit beneath the peaked roof, but there was enough room to swing a sledge. Back downstairs, he opened the front door, then crossed the snowy yard to the truck for the rest of his tools. Already, his first footprints were buried beneath the accumulation, and afterward, he wouldn't be able to convince himself there had been others, no matter how insistently he was asked. In the master bedroom, he flicked the light switch to check the power, then aimed above the outlets and swung. He took what other scrappers might have left behind. With a screwdriver, he removed each metal junction box from the bedroom. Then in the bathroom, he cut free the old copper plumbing from under the sink and inside the walls. He smoked and watched the snow fall through a bedroom window. The world hushed wet under its weight. 
In the South, he'd forgotten the feeling of a house in winter, the unexpected nostalgia of watching the world disappear under snowfall. He put his forehead to the cool glass, watched the stillness fill the pain. Downstairs, he dismantled the kitchen, disconnected the stove from the wall, cut the steel sink from the counter. He worked quietly in what he thought was the wintry hush of the house. But later, he would be told about the amateur soundproofing in the basement, about the mattresses nailed to the walls, about the eggshell foam pressed between the basement rafters. The soundproofing meant the boy screaming in the basement wasn't screaming for Kelly, but for anyone. There would be talk of providence, but what was providence but a fancy word for luck? If the upstairs of the blue house had been plumbed with PVC, Kelly might not have gone down into the basement, but then copper in the basement, but then the copper price. It wasn't until he cut the padlock's loop and opened the basement door that he heard the boy's voice, the boy's hoarse cry for help rising out of the dark. As soon as Kelly heard the boy's voice, the moment split, and the aftermath of that cry, Kelly thought he lived both possibilities in simultaneous sequence. There was an empty basement, or else there was a basement with a boy in a bed, and it seemed to Kelly he had gone into both rooms. Kelly thought if he had fled and left the boy there and disappeared into the night, he might never have had to think about it again, couldn't be held responsible for everything that followed. Instead, he had acted, and now there would be no knowing where this action would stop. Kelly climbed downward, descending the shaft of light falling through the basement door. His clothes clung to the nervous damp of his skin as he stepped off the stairs toward the bed at the back of the low room, toward the boy restrained there, all skin and skinny bones, naked beneath a pile of blankets and howling in the black basement air. One by one, each element of the scene came into focus, the room's angles resolving out of the darkness, each shape alien in the moment, the experience too unexpected for sense. The humidity under the earth, the musky heat of trapped breath and sweat, urine in a bucket, the smell of burrow or warren, then the filth of the mattress as Kelly slid to his knees beside the bed, his headlamp unable to light the whole scene, the boy atop the stained and stinking, stinking sheets, confusing in his nudity, half hidden by the pile of covers, a nest of slick sleeping bags, and beside the pile of blankets, a folding metal chair." The boy's screaming stopped as soon as Kelly lit his features, but Kelly knew the boy couldn't see him through the glare. He shut off the headlamp, removed the glow between them, let their eyes readjust to the dimmer light. He leaned closer, close enough to hear the boy's rasping breath, to smell his captivity, to touch the boy's hand, to try to bring the boy out of abstraction into the sensible world. Kelly's body was moving as if disconnected from thought, but if he could retouch the connections, he would begin to speak. He tried to say his name, failed to speak the word. He shook his head, reached down for the boy. The boy flinched from Kelly's touch, but Kelly took him in his arms anyway, gathered him against his chest and lifted, and then the boy cried out in pain as Kelly jerked him against the metal shelf shackling the boy's feet to the bed, hidden beneath the blankets. The sound of the boy's voice naming his hurt into the black air. This was not the incomprehensible idea of a boy abducted, but the presence of such a boy real enough. And how had Kelly come to hold him, to smell the boy's sweat, then the sudden stink of his own, their thickening musk of fear? 
Because what if he had not left the South? If he had been able to find work instead of resorting to scrapping? If there had not been the fire in the plant so that afterward he worked alone? If he had not met the girl with the limp? If she had not been working today? If she hadn't had another attack the night before, keeping him from drinking so much he couldn't scrap? Providence or luck, it didn't matter. He told himself he believed only in the grimness of the world, the great loneliness of the vacuum. You could be good, but what did it buy you? You could be good and it meant more precisely because it bought you nothing. Kelly cursed, lowered the boy back to the bed, felt the boy's heat linger on his chest like a stain. He touched a place where the boy had been, felt the thump of his heart pounding beneath the same skin, listened to their bodies huffing in the dark as he relit the narrow beam of the headlamp, its light scattering the boy's features into nonsense. I have to go back upstairs, Kelly said. I'll be right back. No, the boy whispered, his voice swallowed by the muted room. Please. Kelly quickly removed his coat and wrapped it around the boy to cover the boy's nakedness, then moved toward the stairs as fast as he could, trying to outdistance the increasing volume of the boy's cries. But there's no way of freeing the boy without his saw, no way of getting the saw without leaving the boy. The basement door opened into the kitchen, and in every direction Kelly saw the destruction he'd brought. The walls gutted, the counters open, the stove dragged free from the wall, waiting for the handcart. The day was ending fast, the light fading as Kelly moved across the dirty tile, looking for his backpack, the hacksaw inside. Outside the open window, the wet whisper of snow fell, quieting the world beyond the house's walls, when inside the air was charged and waiting. When Kelly turned back to the basement, he saw the door was closed, the boy and the boy's sound trapped again. It was a habit to close a door when he left a room, but this time it was a cruelty too. Back downstairs, Kelly found the boy sitting with his bare knees curled into his chest, all of his body cloaked under Kelly's coat. Kelly raised the saw so the boy could see what it was, what Kelly intended. I'm here to help you, Kelly said, or thought he did. The boy was nodding, or Kelly thought the boy was. But after he switched the headlamp on again, he couldn't see the whole boy, only the boy in parts. The boy's terrified face, the boy's clammy chest, the boy's clenched hands and curled toes. He ran the beam along the boy's dirty, bony legs, inspected the cuffs, the bruised skin below. Kelly put a hand on the boy's ankle, and they both recoiled in surprise. Hold still, Kelly said. He lifted the chain in one hand and the saw in the other, and as he cut, he had to turn his face away from the boy's rising voice, speaking again its awesome need. The boy was heavier than Kelly expected, a dead weight of dangling limbs. He asked the boy to hold on, and the boy said nothing, did less. When Kelly looked down at the boy, he saw the boy wasn't looking at anything. Out of the low room, up the stairs, into the dirty kitchen, all the noise the boy had made in the basement was gone, replaced by something more ragged, a threatened hissing. The front door was close to the truck, but the back door was closer, and more than anything else, Kelly wanted out of the blue house, out into the fresh snow and the safety of the truck, it's almost escape. Outside, the wind was louder than Kelly, uh, Kelly had expected, and the thick, wet snow would bury his newest footprints, but there wouldn't be any hiding what he'd done. Kelly carried the boy across the house to the truck, adjusted the boy's weight across his shoulder so he could dig in his pocket for the keys. The boy was shoeless, and Kelly couldn't put him down. The boy was limp and shoeless in his arms, but Kelly thought if he put the boy down, the boy might run. 
At the truck, Kelly lowered the boy into the passenger seat, then stripped off his own shirt. Kelly's arms were bare, but he wasn't cold as he helped the boy stick his arms into the shirt, his fabric long enough to cover most of the boy's nakedness. He bundled the boy back into the coat, too, but the truck was freezing, and the boy's legs were bare, and Kelly wasn't sure the boy's shivering would stop, no matter how warm he made the cab. Kelly walked around to the driver's side, opened the door. Without climbing in, he reached under the steering wheel, put the keys in the ignition, started the engine. He punched the rear defrost, cranked the heat, hesitated. I have to go, he said. I have to go back into the house, but I will be back for you. The boy didn't speak, didn't look in his direction. It wasn't permission. He didn't know if the boy understood. This was shock, trauma. The boy needed to go to a hospital. He needed Kelly to call the police, an ambulance. He needed Kelly to act, to keep rescuing him a little longer. However many minutes it took, moving back into the kitchen to gather his tools into his backpack, then down into the basement for the hacks I had left behind, each minute was its own crime. In the basement, Kelly knew the bed was unoccupied, but when we entered the low room, there appeared a vision of the boy still chained to the bed, an afterimage burning before him. He knew he'd saved the boy, but when he made it back to the truck, the doors were locked, the boy gone. A new panic fluttered in Kelly's chest, but then he looked again, saw the boy hidden in the dark of the snow-covered cab, crouched down in the space near the floorboards beneath the passenger seat, a space which Kelly remembered as a kid he had called the pit. The boy wouldn't come out of the pit, wouldn't unlock the doors or turn his face toward Kelly. Kelly waited until he was sure the boy was looking away, then pulled his sleeve over his bare elbow and shattered the truck driver's side window. And before he drove the boy to the hospital, he had to clear the safety glass from the boy's seat from the thick scrub of the boy's hair. As Kelly pulled into the hospital parking lot, his cell phone rang. Without looking, he knew it was Jackie. He wanted to answer, but there wasn't time. There weren't the right words yet for what he needed to tell her, what he wanted to ask, what he should do next. He parked the truck under the emergency sign, stepped outside into the unplowed parking lot. The snow turned heavier than at the blue house. He walked around the truck, opened the passenger door, lifted the boy's limpness into his arms, said his own name for the first time. The snow fell on Kelly's face and on the boy's face, and neither said anything else as Kelly carried the boy across the parking lot. The boy didn't look at Kelly, and Kelly thought he had to stop looking at the boy, had to watch where he was going instead of taking in every feature, every eyelash and pimple and steaming exhale, had to concentrate on making his body move. A few more steps, he said to the boy, a few more steps and they would be inside, passing through the bright and sterile and inexhaustible light of the hospital toward the company of others where they would be safer than they were now alone. Thank you very much. Right? Yeah. That was nice. Thank you. I don't know if I'm... Well, just to turn it off. Okay. Uh, um, how dare you? What's that? How, how dare I? How dare you? How dare I? I think that's a good start. Um, okay. So so let's let's contextualize this um, this book, which I um, really enjoyed, by the way. Thank you very I much. I like it. And, and it strikes me as a very... Um, 
a very direct book, a very um, kind of um, like kind of urgent book. Yeah, I don't good. know if you had. Yeah, no, it's a good thing. I think so. Um, so you were you were writing this? I'm, I think between like 2012 and 2013, 2014. Probably 2014. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so, so what kind of what kind of coverage um, was Detroit getting at the time in the media? Um, out of curiosity. Yeah, I, I mean, it was. It's always an interesting time, I think, to to be Detroit in the national press because it sort of is this Rorschach sometimes for what other people want to sort of impose yeah. on it. Um, and it was interesting. Uh, what it, what initially got me interested in the I'm I'm from Michigan, I lived in Michigan my whole life until this past year. I moved to to Arizona um, for work. But um, I, from Michigan, but not from Detroit, and I, I got interested in this particular topic because I saw actually in the New York Times a, a short documentary clip. Um, I'm going to remember one of the documentary makers' names, not the other, but Heidi Ewing and another woman who made the Jesus Camp documentary that came out a couple of years ago, and they uh, made a documentary about Detroit called Detroit Opia, Detroit Tropia. Um, and uh, this was a clip of that movie when it was in progress, and it was three, five minutes long uh, following metal scrappers sort of in Detroit, and I was just really fascinated by that that sort of subject um, and, and thought that would be an interesting place for a story. Um, one of the one of the interesting things as, as I was doing the book was I was reading a lot of stuff that was appearing in the national press and national books, but I was also reading sort of the Detroit Free Press and the Detroit Metro Times every day as I was working on it. Uh, I would sort of read them before I started writing every day since I was writing very, very contemporary. Like the, the book, I think, takes place in the year I started writing it, which is maybe not normal way to write. Um, it's a really difficult way to write. I'm writing another book like that, and I think it's maybe a huge mistake. You should always set your books 10 years in the past. Uh, Why do you say that? Because uh, it's really hard, right? Like things are still changing. The sort of the situation mm-hmm. is not resolved, right? Yeah, um, but then you kind of become like a cipher, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Blind justice. I mean, yeah. Yeah. No. There's sort of I, I realize like whenever uh, a book review says like this is a book about how we live now, the book is always about ten years ago. Oh, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So that's a good point. And this book, weirdly, uh, depending on who reviews it, if it gets reviewed by someone from Michigan, they've taken it really face value, mm. like treated it as like a realist novel. Mm. Um, and then sometimes when it's reviewed by people other places, it's been called like a science fiction novel mm-hmm. or a dystopian novel or a post-apocalyptic novel. And some of that's the language, which you can sort of hear, and I, I understand that. But um, but there's something really interesting about that. Like it sort of fits a conversation that's happening in Detroit and feels maybe unbelievable as yeah. contemporary outside. Cool. Yeah. yeah, I think that when you... I'm speculating now, but I think that maybe when you when you started writing this book, it, we were seeing a lot of like post-apocalyptic fiction. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. so this is a really cool um, like response to that. I mean, when I when I first was looking at um, at the at the book and kind of trying to piece together when you were, when you were when you must have been writing, mm-hmm. I was like, oh man, that's a good idea, <laughs> like, you know, right? Because uh, it kind of contextualizes the this the the reason why we think about the apocalypse or post-apocalyptic right. stuff is, yeah. you know, finan- it's like post-financial collapse stuff. And, right. Yeah. yeah, I think that in some ways that's really, I think, the it, a couple of years before I got to that, but I think that was the context I initially thought I was writing into, that I was going to be responding maybe more directly to like 2008, 2009. Yeah. And I did a lot of there's a lot of stuff sort of about that. That's the backstory of Kelly is sort of in that and in and up in the book. But I did a lot of really kind of crushing 
depressing research into people losing their homes yeah. and stuff. As I was buying my first house, it created this like <laughs> extraordinary anxiety, mm. I think. yeah. Oh, is... you bought your first place in Tempe? No, in, in northern Michigan. Oh, no. So it was right when I was starting this book, I was writing about a character like losing his home and then going to all these other houses where people had moved out of while I was trying to buy a house. Oh, yeah. And I just like, I walked around this like actual, like real, like heartache. I maybe like, I mean, I never felt that. I got That's a long scary. way into life. It was That's horrible. Funny, yeah. It just wouldn't go away. Yeah, yeah. It's great. Uh, <laughs> it's good for writing. It's good for writing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I actually wanted to talk about that. Um, because you were in the, the, do they call it the Upper Peninsula? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of wasteland, I assume. Yeah, it's a wasteland. I've never been. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrifying, disgusting. Yeah, sure, man. right, yeah. And not L.A. Not yeah, L.A. Least, yeah. at all. And then, and so then you moved from there to Tempe, Arizona, yes. where I also, I lived there right. for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, which is a wasteland in of its own, own. <laughs> way, um, but a warm one, um, mm-hmm. a hot day in hell. And, and, uh, and I find it. Uh, and I'm getting to a point here, but sure. but I when I was I was learning about uh, the Greeks and classical mythology and and reading a book by Peter um, Peter Meinek about it, he said that a, a cool thing about culture is that you can I is that it, it kind of change broad broad swaths of culture change depend but depending on like the temperature. So sure, like the yeah, Greeks, yeah. it's very warm there, and and so you get the, the stories are all very um, it's like stories of people coming together out. Outside and the gods right. are like publicly like shaming you. Right. Whereas if you're reading like books that are kind of set in in like London or whatever, uh, there's a lot of like people looking out windows, right. and it's a lot of like guilt. So it's like guilt <laughs> culture uh, versus shame culture. Nice, yeah. Um, yeah, you probably um, broadly divide all just cultures into those two things like that. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of cool, and and I think that, and it's like I wonder if you feel like you moved from a um, like a sh- like a like a shame culture to a more encompassing guilt culture. But sorry, it's like a it's kind of a weird multi part question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess I'll start with saying like, do you think that that idea is cool and right? Well, I think all of your ideas are cool and right. <laughs> well, it was Peter so, and my next idea, right. but yeah, uh, yeah. thank you. <laughs> um, I mean, it's interesting because I think uh, people in, in Arizona where I live, at least in the, the neighborhood I live in, are more, like, indoors than mm. people in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Like, people, I think in Michigan people, like, A, in the, like, where I lived in the Upper Peninsula, you have to go outside or you will die in the winter. Like, you get into outside sports or else you will, like... Oh, died. depression. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah you yeah, just yeah. have like a Russian sea captain beard and you drink all the time and it gets really grim. <laughs> that sounds yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, you just wander around the ice one day. It's oh, horrible. Lord, yeah. um, okay. So you can't do that, so you have to like snowshoe. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> that's the alternative. Uh, but I think like we didn't see our, we moved in in August and in Tempe, we didn't see our neighbors. Like no one on our, we didn't see a person outside oh, for yeah, like a I month. Oh yeah, it's so a little 110 extreme. degrees yeah, outside. Yeah, it's a nightmare yeah. out there. So it, it was a weird place. It also feels apocalyptic because it feels like no one lives there. There's all these like 10 year old model homes and no people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm okay. surrounded by churches and targets. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like a weird, it's a weird place. <laughs> yeah. It's great. I mean, I'm really enjoying living there, but it's super weird. That's yeah. good. Have you found that it's uh, has it seeped into your writing at all, or? Yeah, I mean, I, it, I've been thinking about that a lot because I, I lived in Michigan for 34 years, and 
And on one hand, I, I, I mean, I think I feel more like a Michigan writer in the last couple of years than I ever thought of myself that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just because of this book, but just for maybe a couple of different things. But uh, but clearly that landscape, like, really mattered. Like, my last book sort of takes place in the woods. It sort mm-hmm. of has the woods and lake. Mm-hmm. And um, both of my books mostly take place in winter, which is apparently when I think bad things happen. <laughs> like, it gets, it gets cold out and people accurate. start, like, That's hurting accurate. each other. Yeah. Um, which is probably true. Yeah. And uh, and I, I've been thinking a lot about, like, how differently my imagination just would have formed if I had grown up in the Southwest. Like, mm-hmm. just the... the um, yeah, and I, I, I don't know if this happened to you when you when you moved around, but I... Uh, the first year I was there, like, every day looks exactly the same. Like, you look outside in, in Arizona, they all... It's like, oh, oh it's yeah. sunny, and, it, like, they look exactly alike. Yeah. There's no, like, discernible seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, That's an L.A. thing, too. Yeah, and it, I got really depressed about that, like, yeah. the non-passage of time. Yeah. My first semester ended, and I was like, wow. Uh, like, not in, like, oh, the semester went fast. It felt like it had not progressed (laughs) which is a weird thing for semesters not to do and I also found that it's not triggering my memories like my memories are really like seasonal and tied to landscape and weather and I didn't know that Mm. and um and so, like, you know, the first day of fall from the Midwest, you, like, you have that first day of, like, oh, like, football season or something, and you, you have all these, like, high school, whatever. Yeah. Um, and that wasn't happening. And this summer I was traveling. I was in Vermont for a week at the Vermont Studio Center. Oh, yeah. And it was, like, rainy and green and kind of, you know, it was Vermont, but it still felt very, like, camping as a kid in the Midwest, that, like, rainy day with camping. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I hadn't been around that in a while, and my childhood was, like, right here. Mm-hmm. Like, I was walking around, like, like I was, it was too much. It, like, almost overloaded me. <laughs> so I think maybe that will be good for writing. I'll stay away for mm-hmm. nine months of the year, go back. Have a flood of memory and work. God, it but seems unsettling. It was unsettling, but I think I mean your writing is so tied to your memory, right? Your art memory, your life memory, mm-hmm. and to have this landscape make it different to access it is going to be a weird thing. But now that I've lived there a year, things are triggering from a year ago. So, like what? Oh, you know, like you you recognize it again. It's like, oh, this is the part of the year where it gets cooler. This is, you know, what I mean. Like, yeah. there's at least some data where last year everything was just new, so like yeah, it wasn't yeah. doing anything for me. Yeah. yeah. To clarify, Tempe never gets cooler. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah. No, no. I mean, I'm from Arizona. Uh, you know. It's like, you know. I, so I know. Yeah, you're the expert, yeah. not me. No, no. I mean, it, and I think when you live in a place, you start to discern its subtleties a little right. more. Absolutely. And, and I've found that about LA, which people yeah. say it has no seasons, but there, there are kind of right. strange shifting things. Or in Tucson, there's a um, there's a monsoon season, right? Which you, which yeah, is in also Phoenix. in yeah, Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't around during the summer. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and you get this lovely, like, rainfall mm-hmm. kind of world-ending stuff. Yeah. And then d- dirt storms. Have you been in yeah, like, yeah. big haboob? Hab- haboob, yeah. yeah. My first, my day when I went out there for my job interview, I was walking around and feeling very good. It was 110 degrees warmer in Arizona when I, the day I flew out for my job interview than really? it was in Michigan. It was negative 30 to 80. Um, oh you should never go anywhere on earth where it's 100 degrees warmer yeah. than when you started. That's probably a mistake. Your but body would just be like, It was nope. very But I was feeling really good. I was like walking around at the interviews and I'm like, I'm going to go get a beer and I was just warm out and I was feeling good. Mm-hmm. And I, got, I heard like the weather alert sound go off my phone and I was like, ah, yeah. oh, those suckers are home. We're getting snow. Yeah. And it was like dust storm imminent. Take shelter. And I was like, what? <laughs> so I just hid in a bar until the, until yeah. the light came back. Wow. Yeah, it was fine. It was okay. It's they're very unsettling. Yeah, though. it's weird. Yeah. yeah, 
like kind of a Dubai feeling. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. yeah which I don't know, but I, yeah. I, I'll project. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. One of my my first <laughs> memories is of being in one of those. I was young, and oh. and it was like pelting my legs. I remember trying to run away from it. Yeah, running away from a dust storm. His first memory is pretty good. Pretty yeah. <laughs> pretty I, to, I immediately try to contextualize everything yeah. I know about you through that. No. <laughs> Accurate. Yeah. Um, I almost so, told you what my first memory was, but then I thought it would be too revealing. So oh, no, come on. <laughs> right, I'll surprise you with that question right. in a minute. First right, great. Right, wait two minutes. Yeah, let's get it. <laughs> knock off your feet first. First. Um, yeah, so I want to I w- I talk as an inside baseball way about sure. reviews for a second. Because this, this book has gotten some good ones. Some real, yeah, real I think nice. so. Yeah. yeah, the New York Times called it commanding. That's good. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, that was nice. That seems right. Right, right, yeah, right. That seems good. Um, I wonder if how you as a writer um, approach reviews, how they like change you, and how uh, this will be a multi-part thing. But, but sure. like, I don't know. How do you just broadly like think about reviews? Yeah, I mean, they're a weird thing, right? Uh, um, I think I... uh, Well, I think the first thing, the thing I always try to remember is that you're not as good as your best review and you're not as bad as your worst review, right? Okay. Um, (laughs) Because that's helpful for me. It makes me feel normal. Um, My my last book came out, there was a day... Actually, it was around the time I was in L.A. last time. I was flying to to Portland to read at Powell's, and I... I, uh, Got a review on NPR that day. It was like super nice. And it was like, this is one of the best books anyone's written about marriage in the last 10 years. I'm like, awesome. That's really great. And then I landed in Portland and I got a Google alert from the, the Portland newspaper. And it said that my novel had no emotional oh content. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, well, okay, well, neither of those things are probably true. So it's okay. Right, right. Um, I think, uh, I, I mean, I, I think I, I'm interested. I'm not a person who doesn't read them. I think they're interesting. Yeah. Um, I, think I feel so, like people who say they don't read them are lying. Yeah. How would you not? It's so, right. it's too, I'm too curious. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do sort of skim them first instead of like you're just looking for keywords. I'm uh, like, oh, commanding. I'll go back and read the rest now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Most newspaper book reviews that have do this thing, the New York Times, this is sort of like the format of like most book reviews there, is... Um, uh, you have like six paragraphs of praise, and then you have a paragraph of criticism, mm-hmm. and then the last paragraph is like, despite that, this was a really good book, <laughs> yeah. right? And so I often will read the second to last paragraph first, and really? just like get, you just get oh, out of the way, just to get, just get out, out of the way. way. Interesting. Yeah, and if a, if a review is really mean, then I have to read it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good about it. Yeah. Um, I think the best reviews sometimes will come out way after the books went out. Like huh. like you get like sort of someone just like thought about it, and mm. it's you know, and it's not they're not trying to do the like should you buy this book or not buy this book which yeah. is the least interesting thing really like um, I know as a book reviewer myself when I write I, I try really hard not to be qualitative like I just don't it's not it's good or it's bad it's like how does it work what is mm. it trying to do what's the experience like that's what I want mm-hmm. and reviews that do that with my own work have been really helpful yeah um, I don't know if I've ever done something differently because of what a review said but usually by the time the book reviews are coming out, you're halfway into the next thing, and uh-huh. you're sort of like, it barely barely yeah. applies to what you're doing in some ways. Sometimes, although I've, my bad reviews are generally across the board, we're, we're always like, oh, it's, this book is clever for clever's sake. And that's or, your anxiety that's, anyway. That's, oh, right, 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 right. It right, just, right. Like, it's like cracks you up and just, yeah, <laughs> right yeah. there. And I think that it, that, that reading that a, a couple of, or enough times kind of like, yeah, you know, like, it's oh, a weird anxiety. Yeah. I do. I mean, it is make it hard to write right around this time, but like uh-huh. because it feels very public, and I think you have to pretend that no one's ever going to read a book to write one. At least yes. I have to. Yes. Like I think that 
um, imagining what the review of a book would be while I'm writing it is sort of is deadly. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a bad idea. And yeah. so, like, this is always the hardest time when it feels like you're in the public a little bit. The minor way you are as a writer yeah. feels like a little bit much. Interesting, um, yeah. But it's also just weird, of course, because you're t- talking about this book, which I did the last draft of in 2014. Right. And working on something that, you know, hopefully will come out in 2028 or something. Yeah. And you have that place where your brain's, like, in two, uh-huh. two places, which it is, is just hard weird. To, I find it's hard to talk about the thing that you did a, a year ago yeah. or whatever while you're writing the new thing yeah. you know a little bit because this book is so like obviously like real world focused people have asked me a lot of like r- like questions like really specific questions about Detroit or yeah. really specific things about metal scrappy I'm like Not me. I would have known that yeah. three years ago oh, yeah. right and now I'm like vague yeah. answer by a guy who seems like he didn't research his book very well but I did I worked really hard it's the most research I've ever done in my yeah. life it's but interesting because like, you yeah. cite your research and yeah. your acknowledgments which yeah, is yeah cool. at least some of it yeah, yeah yeah well it feels like you have to call out some you know sure maybe no I don't know <laughs> so I think some of it you, a person who knew would catch some of it if I didn't it would be uh-huh. like not it, w- it really would be like you would be able to tell oh uh, like you okay so but I mean that's okay. Yeah, but I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't. I don't have a problem giving people credit where it's that's cool. it's oh yeah. like no, this that's is okay. A, that's you just know? like a legit thing to do. Yeah, yeah. and like um, you 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 go into Chernobyl a little bit and you call yeah. out the very awesome um, letters from Chernobyl mm-hmm. that Keith Guest yeah. edited or translated. Translated, yeah. yeah. Um, and the the end of the chapter that I read tonight, the first chapter I read, the thing that messages in the houses comes out of that book, not out of something from Detroit. Yeah, that's, that's like right. A, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So and also, it informs some of the Detroit parts as well. Yeah. And it reminded me also of a, like a Ninth Ward post Katrina thing. Yeah. Where I read some of that stuff too. Yeah. yeah history repeating itself. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I'm writing a historical fiction now that's a hundred uh-huh. years old. Oh. Speaking of crazy ways, I mean, it's a weird like researching is a weird thing. I'm, yeah. Did Are you, you liking it? Because that's sort of new for you too. It's super you do new. more work research. I don't know. Well, I'm trying to do it in a different way than I've kind of sometimes seen it done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, did you ever read that um, the General in His Labyrinth uh-uh. book? Um, um, Marquez. Uh, mm, well, so it's it's so particularly researched. I feel like he it's like he won the Nobel and he was like, well, what can I do next? And then, <laughs> so he's like, I'm going to write historical fiction and I'm going to nail it. Right. And then it was like, he he wrote this book that was like the 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 movement of the moon was accurate. Right. Like everything was accurate. Yeah. Like the types of hammocks they were mm-hmm. in. And it's this crazy thing where it's like he wants to literally make the tapestry of reality <sighs> You know, it's tough, right? It's impossible. And like, is that what you want to do? I, no, no, I want to yeah, do like no, the opposite. Absolutely of that. not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. More like vague claims of authority. Well, I do whatever I want. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or like, I, I did a lot of research on threats about dentists, yeah. and the history of dentistry, right. and like tooth worms, and uh, which people thought that our cavities were worms in our teeth for a long time. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's different awful. cultures, Sumerians, yeah. and yeah, and the I think like the French later on, and, uh, and the sure. German Germans were like they're not tooth um, <laughs> worms for. Um, and no one I, I did all this research and then I felt like no one ever like called me out on it or, right. ex- except like I did an interview with like the Dental Hygienist Association of that's awesome like yeah of like Upper Phoenix and right. and the, the woman was like is that true? <laughs> that was the only like factual related question right. I, I don't know how you, so it's interesting 
to to hear you say that you have a lot of like of like very pointed like questions from Michiganders. Like like what's the deal with that? Yeah, well, I think it's sometimes just they just recognize things. Like the the beginning of the book and sort of part of the ending of the book take place in in um, the the Packard plant in Detroit, which is you know a very famous sort of mm. uh, ruined automobile plant that was closed in the fifties and still it's three and a half million square feet. It's this enormous, enormous blocks and blocks building, um, and people there recognize that right away. They know yeah. what you're talking about. Um, and and they also are really curious, like about as a lot of the places that I that I talk about in the book. I, I read a part today where he talks about a school and a church and stuff, and it's it's pretty vague in some ways, but they were based on places that I. Uh, like actual closed, scrapped schools and churches and hospitals and stuff that I, I went into while I was researching the book and, and spent some time in. Um, and so that's been interesting to talk about. And some of the, uh, I was in a hospital that was the um, the first hospital in Detroit to take African-American patients. Mm-hmm. So it has this sort of historical importance. It was closed in May of the year I was there. And I was there in September and had been completely gutted. Like everything was out of it. Um, there were actually like people like scrapping the second floor while I was there. Mm. I was on the first floor, and had the photographs I took that day were on the. Um, when I went in, all the windows are on the second floor, and when we came out, they're all gone. Hmm. Like, 25 minutes later, it's wow. just, you know... You can remove stuff from a building really fast if you're not trying to, like, be careful. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't plan to replace it. It's really, actually, pretty easy yeah. um, to tear things out. But uh, but some of that was really interesting. And, and those conversations in Michigan obviously just have a different tenor, you know. Sure. They, yeah, people have relationships to those places. Um, and that's complicated in a way. That's actually really great. It's yeah. nice to sort of... Um, it's nice to engage. It's it's an anxiety, and I think mostly that's a place where more than reviews in some ways, that's a place where people live in Detroit or from Detroit feel like that's something that's been gotten right matters yeah. to me. Because um, really aware that I was an outsider writing about a place that wasn't mine, and that a lot of people already are sort of imposing narratives on. Yeah, um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I that that last idea in particular about you know kind of coming to it out of respect. Mm-hmm. You know, um, whereas like I remember Essie Hinton um, talking about she wrote a, a book about like a- Antarctica or something or or like s- super north. Uh, a pole kind of stuff mm-hmm. and somebody asked her it was like it was like her first like adult novel yeah. and someone asked her like if she'd spent time up there and she's like no right <laughs> and, and was like you know I like I've I've never been there but I know what it's like to be cold sure uh, which is so <laughs> cool, like dismissive in a way right. that was pretty baller yeah. but uh but I, I think it's interesting because it's, it's a different thing than saying, like, I don't need to go to Detroit right, to right. understand it. Because that's especially, like, as a white guy. Sure, especially yeah, as like absolutely. A, like, I don't know if, if like, it, it, like, class comes into it. I think so, absolutely, it. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I mean, this stuff's always, I mean, you know, it's, it's always tricky. I think you can, because really, in some ways, I'm a... I don't know how, where you're at in your process researching, but I do a lot of like the really heavy research during like a second draft. Hmm. Like I yeah. really, I, like yeah. I research what I need to like get along in a first draft, mm-hmm. or I'm looking at a lot of photographs. Would like there that. be boats? Right. Would there yes. be boats? Boats have been around um, for a long time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, that's good. Glad you figured that out. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, uh, but I just want to get along. I want to keep writing, and then the second draft, I'm a little more worried about like sort of getting it right. Yeah. And one of the reasons for that is for me, I want to get like. I want to get sort of the character arc right. I want to get the emotions right. And then, like, the, the details I can sort of graft onto that. 
or sometimes they can get in the way for me the fir if I happen too early. Oh. And all of the book research, I don't know if you find this, because writers always want to interpret everything. Mm. I just want them to give me the facts. What was it like? Were there boats? Mm. I just want to know the answer. <laughs> and they're like, well, there were boats, and there were boats because mm -hmm. like men in ancient Babylon like loved boats, and like right. they were and symbols like, of their fathers. And I'm care. like, I don't need don't any care. of that. Yeah. I just need to know if there are boats. Yeah. I, I want to interpret for myself. I want right. to make up my own. Right. right. And so like, right. after my world is there, then I'm okay reading other people's interpretation. But early on, it sort of feels like, oh, I don't need to write about this because somebody else already figured it out. And right. It gets in my way. So it's a weird thing. So I right. did that in-person research I did. I did, I mean, I, you know, I'd spent time in Detroit but not focused on this. Yeah. I did, I think, like, the third draft of my book. Like, I was sort of, like, rounding, like, oh, I'm going to give this to my editor in six months. I, I'm going to go finish that research now. Yeah. Um, which is, like, a weird... No. But that's, for me, that's the right fit. And it does, you know, you get 80% of it right because you're imaginative and, you know, I got 50%. You'll get 80% right. Um... <laughs> 10% super opportunity. I would never have noticed this if I hadn't been there, right? You know, I wouldn't have, if I hadn't seen there, if I hadn't seen the light or the smell or the sound. Mm -hmm. And 10% I got terribly wrong. And I would have, if I'd published it, people could have, you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. They would have been like, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, um, yeah so. it's funny because I'm writing a little bit about like sex work in a way that, uh, that like my friend who's an, it's funny, my friend who's an academic is like, oh, like I've got all these primary sources. Right, like, right, I can, right. It can like connect you with like women I know who've, who've worked right, in right. that, in different like aspects of that. And I'm looking at like academic like studies yeah. on like uh, like the trans experience, which is so weird and feels very wrong. Right, right, but, right. Um, and and might not turn out good. But like that said, yeah. like I kind of want to I want to understand factually the like breadth of an idea. Right. And then and then create a character that feels real. And then go back and say like like how how am I screwing this up as, yeah. as somebody who like hasn't like lit, like worked in a sure. brothel in the Nevada right. desert or whatever. Sure. You know. Uh, I, so I don't know. I don't know. So I get what you're saying. Yeah. About about like the third pass idea. It it's possible to really. I think the problem with the general in his labyrinth, um, which is probably my least favorite of of, of his books, is that it, I think he gets in his own head. Right. And uh, I think he had to he had to do all the super research. Uh, ahead of writing the right. book, and then it became a little bit of like describing the hammock a little bit more. Yeah, he was pretty pleased that he had discovered that. Right, technique. right, right, absolutely. Yeah, and then I like that your that your book doesn't feel like that. It just feels like a textural right. thing in the background, which. Yeah, I mean, I th I think they're they're both. Right. And I did a lot of research in the first draft, but just not that kind. You know, it was sort of like it was a lot. Like I said, like a lot of stuff, non words, non interpretation, a lot of photographs, things to look at, things to think about, mm -hmm. a lot of video. You know, I watched. A lot of YouTube videos, um, people of journalism. I watched a lot of journalism with the sound off. Mm. Like, I, like I didn't want to. I didn't want to hear them fast. talk about it. I just wanted to see the <laughs> yeah. story, yeah, yeah. Um, which is also sort of a funny way to do it. Yeah. The photo galleries that go with like Detroit Free Press articles, but not the Free Press article. Okay. Like you sort of like that. What's happening in this picture is more right. useful to me as a writer right. than like having someone tell me what's happening in the. In yeah, the and it's like like reading somebody's thoughts. It, like you you get the bias. You yeah. get the you get the trend. You get like well, people want to write about like Detroit is like an urban yeah. garden right now, and like but they're not going to think about it in, in that way in eight months. They're going to think about it in a different way. So I, when I was. Uh, 
I went and visited the Packard plant when I was was there, and I'd, I'd written all this stuff about it. Um, we were outside, and we were talking about it uh, with this photographer I was with. Um, and we ran into this guy who was a journalist for the Wall Street Journal who had written a bunch of articles about Detroit, and I had used a bunch of them for research at various ages. And it was interesting talking to him about his articles and what could and could not go in them for like the Wall Street Journal to want to publish them, uh-huh. right? So it's like, well, it's more complicated, but they will really want like this sort of take on Detroit, yeah. you know? So sort of you have that like, you know, like his journalistic factual thing that I'd used to research was also called and sort of selected and right. to tell a certain story. And yeah. 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 So, you know, so it's, it's, it's a, it, every, newspapers ever, right? Ever, no. I don't, think, <laughs> I don't think that's the solution, but yeah. But yeah, I mean, everything has that sort of. Yeah, yeah. It's good. This yeah. was interesting. I think I got trapped into saying books yeah. were bad yesterday. Now I'm saying newspapers <laughs> are bad. I'm not doing very good on this. <laughs> I think books did. and newspapers are great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel like we should, should open some, it up. Yeah, a yeah, please. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. To the floor. Um, ask us, ask it, ask him anything. I'll be here too, hey, Jim. Yeah. Question for you, Matt. Uh, how long have you been interested in scrapbooking? <laughs> scrapbooking, yes. <laughs> what a dick. That's what good. What a dick. Um, I, uh, there, my, I've come from a family of scrapbookers, you know, but I've never done it myself. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know. I know. Uh, we'll fight in the parking lot later. It'll be good. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned earlier about the the main character is also a boxer. Can you yeah. Talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I uh, I would never he would, I never boxed, uh, but I wrestled. I wrestled for like thirteen years, um, and so that so there's a lot of my. Uh, I think there was some crossover, maybe, to how I thought those might what those might be like. Um, I took a, I worked out for a while at a boxing gym in Upper Northern Michigan when I was there, um, which was uh, was great and interesting. Again, though, after I had written almost all of the book, like I'd written all this boxing, I was like, oh, maybe I'll go hit something, um, which was good. Um, and I also. Uh, read and really loved while I was working the book uh, Joyce Carol Oates' Unboxing which is a phenomenal phenomenal book unboxing I, I don't know why Joyce Carol got so excited about boxing and she's she written like four or five other essays about that aren't in that book mm-hmm. I mean she's just like really into it which is kind of amazing yeah. but it's a really good book and uh, and so when I didn't know something sometimes I like leaned on that book that's one of the things I called on the acknowledgments is just like there's no reason not just to, to say where I got that from yeah. um, so there's sort of a blend of like my wrestling experience for how it feels sort of to to be fighting another human being I guess and then um, and then maybe like Joyce Carol Oates' unboxing I'm not actually that interested in boxing sort of generally um, I've, I don't really watch it or anything so it's like a weird I watched a lot of like boxing for a very short period of time um, and the working out in the boxing gym was really great it was a, a, a the guy who ran it had been an Olympic boxer an Olympic coach and uh, and just listening to him talk was super helpful I got all these little phrases that I would never have heard um I remember him teaching me something and oh it was like stepping without punching and he'd be like that's a blank step and I'm like oh it's such a good term like the blank step you know and things like that that in a in a couple months there I got that little bit but yeah boxing's really great I think it was interesting for this book one of the ways I think it's used in the book is it's the rules of boxing are strange partly um because obviously you can die in, in a boxing match um, but you cannot be murdered in a boxing match. The, the, that, that's how in like Nevada boxing is legal because they suspend 
murder for the duration of a boxing match. That's legally how they figure it out. If you were killed in a, or used to at least, if you were killed in a boxing match, you would not have been murdered. Well, you give up your right to be murdered wow. when you agree to be in a boxing match. Yeah. And so that that's like a weird thing. And so part of what the, the narrator is doing at some point is looking for ways to like suspend the normal rules around violence. Um, and so boxing ties into that extra way. So that's why. That's also how it is in the Skylight Books parking lot. <laughs> Good. That's great. Awesome. I'm terrified now. Hey, actually, the, the, my last two bookstore events, someone's someone's offered to fight me. Bonnie Jo Campbell. Uh, I ran into her in Michigan, and she was like, "I just want you to know that I would I would kick your ass in a fight." And I'm like, "Well, probably." Like, <laughs> so, so fierce woman, you know. It was good. That's so pretty good. Uh, please. I remember that boxing when I read Joyce Carol Oates. Yeah. Nobody read Joyce Carol Oates, and it was okay. It was really slammed, and uh, I remember I said, "This is one of the best pieces of writing I've ever read." It's so good. Yeah. Nobody listening now. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, right. But I really like this part of and. I remember I was watching this kind of interview type of thing with David Foster Wallace. Yeah. And he got thrown a question. Do you think people can be too smart to write? And it, he just went into meltdown. It was crazy. Wow. That would be going like directly into his like anxiety though, yeah. right? Like that's like a cruel question. Holy it's shit. like <laughs> Wow. Oh. Did he did he cry? No. I mean it was it was like yeah, yeah, that yeah, sounds yeah. really awful. I feel like you're gearing up to ask me the question that will undo me. <laughs> I'm just like, like <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be over here. <laughs> yeah. I thought, you know, you guys have much different both of you objectives than DFW. Sure, yeah. You know, so I feel like, what do you guys think of that question? For him, it was like, it was like the Harvard Walters question. Yeah. Heard, you know. I mean, how do you guys feel? Is there such a thing? I was just curious. If we could be too smart to... Well, we right. don't have that problem. I know, right? I wanted to make that joke. <laughs> yeah. You said really interesting things about getting the narrative out of the mm. And um, I'm just wondering, like, what types of being too smart? Yeah. That is a great question, though. I do think I, I do things to, like, get around my brain a lot as a writer, like, for sure. Like, I try not to overthink things early on. I, um, I, do, I do eventually do, like, that kind of outlining and planning that you might think you should do at the beginning. That I do that, like, as part of revision. I, to, I outline my first drafts as, like, plans for second drafts. Because if I outline in advance, it's all head and no heart and it doesn't work very well. Mm. Um, I think my own sort of day-to-day writing goals are more emotional than intellectual, if that makes sense. Like, this book has, I think, hopefully a, a good intellectual base, but, like, what I'm trying to do every day at the desk is, like, make myself feel a certain way or, or trying to to play. I, I think I, I really hide what I'm doing for myself in certain ways. With my first novel, you know, your brain wants to make sense of things. Like, it's a sense-making device mm-hmm. and pattern recognition. And uh, And I would find myself being away from the page and my brain would be like, this, this, and this. This is what happens next. We got it. Like this is the path to the end of the book, and I would, and it would make me crazy. I would just, I'd want to be in the moment I'm writing, and I would have all this stuff. And I found I could like write all that out and do this like good job of like intellectually like working through the book, and I would just like throw that away and go back to like working on the scene I was writing. Um, so trying to like hide out from my brain sometimes is good. Later, I want, I want to be sure it's all right. I want to be correct. I don't, you know, want to leave it that way. But, um, but yeah. But like I, I think as Amelia jokes, like I, I don't worry about being too smart or being too talented or too funny, all things that I worry that I'm not enough of. Mm. Um, but I think 
in some ways I find that really freeing. Like I think like it's I I, I can't control how much talent or intelligence I have, but I can control how hard I work or how long I work or, or I'm willing to try to take the thing as far as I can. Um, and so that's easier for me. But uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think what the question like that would be that would, would get me. Are you too much this mm, to be a writer? That's, another, I'm just that's trying a good question too. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. What's the answer to that? Do you have an answer for Ooh, that? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's something about cleverness. Yeah. You know? Can like, you be too clever? Yeah, yeah. I knew that was going to be your answer. Yeah, was, probably. Was, yeah, that gets me. Trying to get you to cry those big David Foster Wallace tears. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Oh. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I, that made me think of um, uh, uh, Dennis Johnson, who I saw uh, get interviewed at USC a couple years ago. And it was such an interesting interview because it was it was high academia in mm. like full form and and well the kind of like obviously the interviewer was teaching a seminar on him and was just like like expert like and was like had made her, his work her life in a way that was very daunting for even me as a as a uninvolved audience member and but Dennis seemed like really kind of immune to it in a funny way and she was asking questions about like contextualizing his work and like theology of the time and like like the the broader like inner like geopolitical scope mm. of like train dreams and and he was like I just wanted to write a cool story like he like got kind of like purposefully obtuse about it like and that's a freaking genius you know mm-hmm. um, and and so it was an interesting like he he like was very allergic to that idea and kind of rebelled against it in a in a punky sort of way um, but I don't know yeah I think the cleverness thing would, yeah. would get me although it's like I'm the book so the book I'm writing now is like anti-clever yeah. in a way that's almost like a um, just uh, maybe to try something new I, I always really hate it when people are like oh like this is what Amelia Gray is good at right. like 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 dark funny or or clever or whatever then I'm like what if I write a historical fiction about a modern dance like right. <laughs> then what and I don't know I don't know I feel I, like Joyce Carol Oates does that a little bit too as like yeah about boxing and, absolutely you know and she's just also very into it you, you and I were joking before that if we got stuck up here we would just go through our old text messages and like see if we had fini- not finished <laughs> hashing out some anxiety right, right. Um, and it occurred to me that I, I remember maybe it might have been a little while ago it might have been before it was definitely before Gutshot came out and before this came out I think you and I were working on those books mm-hmm. and we were talking about um Feeling like when we were first starting out as writers and we were trying to get published and we were giving readings before we had books and stuff, Mm -hmm. that we were trying to make everything sort of like as loud and sort of attention grabbing and sort of demanding in that way as we could. I think we were both feeling like maybe we wanted to write something that didn't, that that wasn't the first goal, right? To do other things. And I I thought about that about five pages into my reading where I'm like, rah, 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 rah. And I'm like, I'm obviously not there. But like, (laughs) but but it's interesting to think like, that want to like give up something that you've done well to get somewhere new yeah is like and I think that's great I, I feel the same way like I want to like yeah 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 I mean the bluster for me has always been a bit of a defense yeah, yeah, yeah anyway yeah. so right. yeah 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 good good we're airing our stuff it's good thank you we're getting, I, I feel I feel a lot better I know make I'm it transfer our anxiety to the give you guys each a crowd. copay yeah. at the end of this right. yeah yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, other question we still have a little time yeah maybe yeah Vern's like I don't care all right uh, yeah. Were 
Yeah, I think I had that idea about the zone really fast. I think that's like a first week or two kind of thing. I think it kind of drove the language in a certain way. Um, and uh, I'm not 100% sure. Well, I know a little about where that came from, which is sort of there's uh, some of the pictures of Detroit look like, like some of the pictures of abandoned buildings in uh, in Chernobyl, in, in the Ukraine, like they're sort of a similar eerie emptiness or abandoned, especially like thing, public buildings, like schools that get closed in Detroit. Like nobody takes the stuff out, right? Like they sort of get closed and there's still like rooms full of desks or like libraries full of books. And that's really haunting in a certain way. And, and Pripyat around Chernobyl was abandoned rapidly, right? They sort of like forced people out immediately. So places got left as if people were living in them. And the area around Chernobyl is called the exclusion zone. So that was sort of partly like using that language. And so I think that that became generative in a certain way. Um, I had no idea what the plot of the book was when I started writing at all. I, I had the, that action of metal scrapping. I had this location I was interested in. I don't think Kelly had a name for like the first two months I was working on it, you know, which is I think why the book has a thing about naming now. People didn't have names for a long time. Um, and uh, in my last two books, it had no proper names for characters. And at some point, I was like, you've got, like, character names. Like, I have to, like, force myself, right? It's like, it's time to learn how to use character names again. Which is, like, the weirdest stuff you, you get into as a writer. But um, I'm going to not do that yeah. forever. <laughs> so I think, think that it came from that. And then, um, and then it's sort of following the consequences of that first choice or of the, using that language. There's a Swedish... Uh, uh, sort of speculous, fabulous writer I really like named Karen Tidbeck, a young writer wrote this great book called Jagannath, which if they have here, you should buy. Um, and uh, and she, I interviewed her for Rain Taxi, I think, after her book came out. And we talked about world building, and, and she said that for her, world building is taking all of the consequences of an idea, right? Like you have an idea and you take all the consequences, and that's your successfully world built. And that seems to be true for in whatever you're writing. A realist book has a world that you're building as well. What are the consequences of these choices you made? Language choices, setting choices, how do you follow those out? And so I think worrying about some of that stuff is like taking that first idea about the zone and trying to extrapolate what, those, what that meant for how the rest of the book had to look and work. Thank you. That's great. No one's asked me that. I think that's that's good. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. I think maybe one more. Well, yeah, yeah, that sounds uh, good. One more. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's you. It's you. You got it. So you know, I'm curious about how in America things have to. We have to examine the Orleans to get American stories. Sure. And so, what do you see? We see our future in these in these rooms. Yeah, I mean, there's some, uh, there's an aspect of, well, there's a couple of things, right? One is that, I mean, from the history of civilization, places are lived in and then they're, they're left and they're, they're not, right? I mean, like, that's, that's just, that's just part of our story, you know? I mean, it's, it, it feels, I mean, maybe it feels different partly in America because we don't have that, that same history of cities, you know, our cities are so much younger. Um, Detroit's is dramatic partly because it happened so fast. The, it's, it, the boom is the beginning of the 20th century. The collapse is the second half. Um, Detroit's the only American city ever to go above a million people in population and come back under. Mm -hmm. It was at one point about 1.7, 1.8. Now it's about 700,000, um, which is dramatic, right? So there's like infrastructure for a million people that don't live there. Um, I think one of the reasons I was trying to make the, the Chernobyl-Detroit connection using some of the Chernobyl stuff is also I think there's something about both places that sticks to me. And I think the, the third triangle
drawing on this for me is is New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, which I think is a similar uh, warning. Um, it seems to me that the the Chernobyl disaster and the abandonment of Pripyat and and what happened around that over, over the 30, almost 40 years since then, um, is one consequence of Soviet communism taking all the way. That's one consequence. I think the rapid expansion and and abandonment and, and capitalist abandonment and political abandonment and racist abandonment of Detroit is a similar kind of warning about American politics, American economics, American capitalism. And we ignore sort of at our own peril. It's the big. It's it's this example we could look at. Um, and I think uh, I think the post-Katrina New Orleans had similar sort of lessons that we, we ignore sort of at our own thing. But what happened in Detroit could happen to any city in the country. And it did happen to other cities at different scales um, and is happening. Uh, at one point, there was this huge thread through the book. There was going to be all these other little things and other abandoned towns and it didn't pan out. But there's, you know, there's abandoned cities everywhere in the country. There's certainly in California and in the West, they're everywhere, right? Like these little gold towns and mining towns and right there. And, um, and Detroit's dramatic because it's both the biggest one and also still lived in and still vital and still going to, it's going to become something else. It's not going to be what it was 50 years ago, but it's going to become something else that will also be interesting. Um, but it will be a city that's built on top of the last city that was there in some ways. So that makes sense. And that's exciting and interesting and weird. And we maybe sort of ignore it. Uh, we have, there's a risk in ignoring it. And so I, th I, I think the reason to write a book like this, if I can if get a, if I can one last thing and I'll stop talking, I promise, uh, is not because I, it's not because it's bleak or because it's despairing or because I want to like glorify this difficult situation. I, th I think it's hopefully a chance to, to bear witness something, to attract attention to something. And really I hope that even though the book is, it is a difficult book, I, I know that, but I also think that hopefully writing it is a hopeful gesture. It's a want for things not to be the way they are in a certain way. I think you chose the American tragedy and the American romance is the story of our lifetime. And I just, you know, I applaud you on that. I think you chose the right story. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you all so much for yeah. being here. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Amelia. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.